Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 15 to verse 29. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Father, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what we are about to look at is so profound that, Lord, It's hard for us to realize it. It's hard for us to grasp what is being said. And Father, I just pray that this morning as we consider this passage, that we would listen as our lives depend on it. That you would open our ears to hear and understand what Jesus is saying. And that we would have the ability to see, the ability to understand. And Lord, I thank you that you have spoken, you have revealed yourself. Please Open your word to us this morning and honor your son and honor yourself through your son. Lord, I ask that this would be a life-changing morning for all of us. And I pray this in the name of your beloved son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Now, if you've ever read a John Grisham novel, or if you've ever seen the film A Few Good Men or a film like that, then you know that criminal courtroom dramas are some of the most exciting stories available to us on this earth. Would you agree? Criminal courtroom dramas are some of the most exciting stories that are available to... Have none of you ever read a John Grisham novel? (laughs) Have you never seen A Few Good Men? (laughs) Have you ever seen To Kill a Mockingbird or read the book To Kill a Mockingbird? A story that involves a courtroom and and a crime case is among one of the most exciting stories available to us. And it's no wonder, brothers and sisters, there are a few things more intense, think about it, than a person's fate being decided, right? A person's fate is being decided. Are they going to be executed or not? Are they going to go to jail for the rest of their life or not? Pretty profound things being decided. By trial, that is, people are bringing forth evidence. You've got an accuser who's bringing forth evidence. They're mounting a case against this man. You've got a defender who's mounting a case to defend this person. There's a struggle with evidence mounting on each side. And the outcome is uncertain. Things can change. The stakes are high. That's exciting. I think that's why people get so gripped by those kind of stories. Anthony Salvaggio, in his book, The Seven Signs of Jesus, commenting on this chapter, but he's reflecting on crime room, uh, courtroom dramas, says this, Of course, one of the most interesting elements of a good crime drama is an unexpected plot twist at the end. Now, this entire fifth chapter of the Gospel of John, if you're familiar with it, is just such a story. The whole chapter five is basically a criminal courtroom drama, is it not? It starts with an alleged crime. It starts with an event that is, it's an event that is seen as a violation of the law. It stirs up controversy. There's an investigation. Who did this? And they're looking for the one who's guilty. Their investigation digs up even more problems. Then we have Jesus' apologia or defense, where he's defending his actions and he's defending who he is and what he's done. Complete with him calling witnesses. If you're familiar with the rest of this chapter, which we didn't read, then you know that in the latter part of the chapter, Jesus calls forth witnesses to testify on his behalf. And he points to these witnesses and says, these are the witnesses that are, that are on my side. These are the ones that testify of the truth and of who I am. And then there's a surprising plot twist at the end of this chapter. Because when it looks like the Jews have mounted a strong case against Jesus, yeah, this man is totally guilty of violating the Sabbath. He's guilty of blasphemy. Then Jesus turns the table, surprisingly, and accuses his accusers of being guilty and of not loving God and of violating the law. It's a surprising thing. Hey, you're on trial here, Jesus. And he actually says, actually, no, you guys are on trial. You guys are guilty. There's a a plot twist. This is the first major confrontation between Jesus and the formidable religious establishment in the Gospel of John. Of course, he went into the temple and he... He cleansed the temple, and that was controversial. But chapter 5 is the first controversy or confrontation where we see Jesus dialoguing at length, arguing at length against the religious establishment in his day. 
And I'd like us to just think about something here that should strike us as a remarkable fact. That Jesus' first major confrontation with the leadership of Israel takes this form. Think about that for a moment. So when Jesus first, and we first see him really arguing with and, and confronting the religion of his day, it takes the form of a courtroom. It takes the form of evidence being mounted against him and he mounting evidence in his defense and against them. It takes this courtroom-like, it looks like a courtroom-like battle. That's what it turns out to be. And I think this is a remarkable fact that we should think about. Now, friends, many people think today that religion is a matter of private preference. Have you ever have you picked up that sense in our society? Religion is a matter of private and personal preference. It's certainly not a matter that you would bring to court, right? You don't take religion to court. You don't argue in court, mounting evidence, these days anyway, for what is the truth and what is, what is false. It's just your preference. By way of example, I was recently up at USU, and uh, I was going inside the TSC, and I happened to overhear a tour guide who was giving a tour to prospective students. You know, they walk them all over campus, and they explain to them what USU has to offer and these kind of things. And he was, I, I just happened to hear, he was talking about all the different religions that were represented on the campus. He's saying, yeah, we've got the Catholic Newman Center over here. You know, we've got a Logan Islamic Center nearby. We've got the LDS Institute right there. We've got the Baptist Union, you know, representing. And he basically was like, whatever flavor you like is, is here. It's represented. It's just, all the flavors are here, whichever you like. You see, if religion is like going to an ice cream shop. And you got all your different flavors, and you kind of look and say, ooh, I don't like those ones. Which is, oh, I really like this one. This is my preference. This is the one I enjoy. You don't tell people what they should or shouldn't have, right? What do they want? What do they enjoy? What works for them? That's how people think of religion these days. It wouldn't be a matter of taking someone to court over it, arguing, bringing forth your reasons. But this only shows how far our society has come from a biblical way of thinking, from a, re- from a way of thinking that's real. Because according to the Bible, brothers and sisters, and we see this here in John chapter 5, and let's not miss this point. Religion, according to the Bible, is entirely a matter of truth. Right? That's what, that's what it's all about. It's not a matter of personal preference at all. It's strictly a matter of truth. In John chapter 18, verse 37, when Jesus is on trial for blasphemy, he tells Pilate, for this purpose I came into the world. This was the reason that I was born, to testify of the truth. That's what religion is all about, according to the Bible. Truth. Truth. And so we don't appeal to feelings. We don't appeal to preference. We don't appeal to what works for you or this is my way of life that I enjoy or like or that kind of works with my family situation, you know, or my society situation. I'm this religion because I was born into it. I'm this religion because that's my society. If I'm really going to get along with people, I'm going to be this religion. (laughs) That's not how it works. It's all about truth. 
It's utterly a public affair. It's not a private affair at all. If it's about reality and truth, then it's public. We say, this is true, and therefore whoever's believing this is in the truth, and whoever isn't is not in the truth. It's a public affair. We are as much concerned with facts when we're considering Christianity as policemen are concerned with facts when they're considering a crime. We're as much concerned with facts when we're considering Christianity as you are concerned with facts when you're looking for the bathroom in a public place. You want to know where the bathroom is. You don't want people's feelings, right? Tell me where it is. That's what Christianity is about. How do I get there? How do I get to heaven? Tell me the way. Tell me the truth. Tell me reality. Isaiah 41, God himself says, bring forth your strong case. God actually invites people not just to bring a case, but their strongest case. He says, bring, bring me your hardest evidence. Come on. You don't want to believe in me? Then mount your case against me. Come let us reason together, says the Lord, Isaiah chapter 1. See, here's the thing. If you reject Christianity, and maybe you have, or you know people who have rejected Christianity, they're not Christians. If you have rejected Christianity because it's not your thing, if that's your reason, I'm not a Christian because that's not my thing. I'm not a Christian because I just don't have the good feelings about Christianity. You haven't actually rejected Christianity at all. You've rejected a phantom thing that you've called Christianity because what Christianity really is is a truth claim. So the only way you can actually reject Christianity is if you look at Christianity and say, that is not true. I've heard the evidence for Christianity and I've rejected that. I've got a different case that's stronger. But you don't reject Christianity just by saying, yeah, it's not really my thing. Or I'm not cut out to be a Christian or whatever like that. It's the nature of truth to be either true or false of, of a proposition that claims to, tr- to be true, to be either true or false. So to reject Christianity, brothers and sisters, a person would have to enter the courtroom, deal with the arguments that are being given for Christianity, and say they're deficient. And sadly, most people who reject Christianity don't do that. And so they don't even know what Christianity is claiming to be. They don't even understand the nature of it when they reject it. It shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that in chapter 5, when Jesus first clashes at length with the leaders of his day and with religion in his day, it takes the form of a courtroom. Does that surprise you? Or is it like, well, obviously, I mean, Jesus is claiming truth, they're claiming truth, so they're obviously going to clash about what the nature of truth is. They're going to clash, they're going to mount their evidence, they're going to argue against each other, because that's what truth is all about. So we see a trial, and brothers and sisters, not only a trial, but the trial of the universe being taken, taking place here in chapter 5. Some trials they call the trial of the century. Well, this is the trial of the universe. This is, an in, this is a perennial trial. This is not some little dispute, brothers and sisters, but this is the dispute of the ages. Chapter 5 is timeless. It's as relevant today as it ever was. Who is Jesus? 
I'm going to be dividing up this chapter between two Sundays. There's literally, there's so much here. It's impossible to deal with it all in, without uh, going over it multiple times. This week we're going to look at verse 15 to verse 29, which is the investigation against, against, uh, into this alleged crime that took place. We looked at this crime last week. So we're going to look this morning at the investigation that takes place and, and Jesus's, the first part of Jesus' defense. The first part of his defense. Next week, we're going to look at the second part of his defense when he brings forth witnesses. So next week, we're going to see how Jesus proves his case. This week, we're just going to look at what his case is. Next week, how he proves his case. And please come. It's, it's a powerful, timeless argument, how he proves his case. And we're going to look next week also at that surprising plot twist where he turns the tables. But I'd like to just say something important before we begin this morning. Before God in heaven, it is not really Jesus who is on trial in this chapter, but it is you and I. Yes, the circumstances are such that the leaders of Israel are putting Jesus on trial. They're saying, you've committed a crime, you're guilty, and Jesus is defending himself. It's true. But before God in heaven, it is not Jesus, but it is you and I, it is the leadership in Israel that's really on trial. Because what we do with Jesus, friends, reveals more about us than anything else we could possibly do. What the leaders in Israel were doing with Jesus in this chapter was actually revealing themselves and causing judgment to be brought upon themselves. And doesn't Jesus say that? Doesn't he move from defending himself, as we read this morning, to even talking about our judgment, right? He says, there's coming a day when the Son of Man will judge everyone. And depending on what you do with the Son of Man will determine whether you're condemned or not. Right? So it's ultimately not Jesus who's on trial, but all of us. So I urge us all to be careful how we judge. Because how we judge Jesus will determine how we ourselves are judged. This morning, we'll look at three things. First of all, we'll look at the charges that are brought against Jesus by the Jews. Secondly, we'll look at how it is that Jesus is God. What we're concerned to ask here is, how is it possible for Jesus to be God? And thirdly, we'll look at the reason the Messiah must be God. The reason the Messiah must be God. There's so much just in the passage that we read this morning that don't expect us to look at it all today. We will go back again and throughout the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is so integrated that there's lots of occasions to always be going back and looking at things. But I fear that if I was to focus on all the details of the text that we read, will miss the main points. So I'd like to focus on the main points this morning. The charges brought against Jesus, how it is that he could be God, and why the Messiah must be God. So first of all, let's look at the charges. And let's look again at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So we see there's an investigation going on, as I said. There was an alleged crime, and the leaders are searching for the real culprit of this crime. 
Last week we saw that this man was arrested for carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. They said, you can't carry that. It's the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to be carrying anything. And here he, here's this man carrying a load, carrying his mat, which is a clear violation of the Sabbath day. And lest we think that's some little crime, okay, maybe in our 21st century American mindset, what's the big deal? We carry things on the Sabbath all the time, right? But in the first century, that was a, such a serious crime that a person would be worthy of death. It was the legal punishment for breaking the Sabbath would be death. That's how serious it was. That's what the law prescribes. And there's precedent in the law. You'll remember that there was a man carrying sticks on the Sabbath day once, and Moses inquired of the Lord, and the Lord actually required that man would be stoned. So it's a serious crime. So this man is, is arrested. He's carrying this mat. And, of course, he's quick to tell them, hey, you know, the man who healed me told me to carry my mat. So it turns out the man was lame, and now he's healed, and he was told to carry the mat. But he didn't know who Jesus was. He was ignorant. And Jesus, it says, last week we saw, had slipped away. So he didn't know who Jesus was or where he had gone. So they're looking for this healer. They're looking and investigating who was the one who was who had healed him and told him to carry the mat. And as I said last week, the issue would have been over had not Jesus found this man again in the temple and in verse 14 warned him about a greater judgment and a greater condemnation that could come upon him. So if Jesus had have just walked away, if he had just walked away, there wouldn't have been a problem. Jesus doesn't walk away. And so now they know it's Jesus. Look at verse 16. Here is the first charge brought against Jesus. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath day. So charge number one, Jesus has violated the Sabbath by healing someone. That is, he did work on the Sabbath and also by telling someone to carry a load on the Sabbath day. Is he guilty? What we say about Jesus here says a lot about ourselves. Now Jesus' answer in verse 17 brings forward a second charge in verse 18. Jesus answers in reply to the first charge, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now what do they think of this answer? Do they say, Oh, that makes sense. Okay. You're acquitted, <laughs> you know. See, it actually causes more problems for Jesus, this answer. For this reason, verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. In other words, now they've got another big, juicy charge to lay against Jesus, and that is blasphemy. Jesus is claiming equality with God. That's blasphemy. Is he guilty? Well, what we say about Jesus reveals a lot about ourselves. But they did detect rightly in his answer that he was claiming equality with God. Now, I'd like you to imagine yourself in the first century, you're Jewish, You're loyal to the leading and prevailing ideas in your day. And you hear of this person 
who is working on the Sabbath day. And you're like, what? He's working on the Sabbath day? And yeah, and you know what he said when we confronted him? He says, I'm working today because God's working today. What do you do with that? I'm working today. Why? Because God's working today. And if he's working today, then it's okay for me to be working today. What was offensive to the Jews here was not only that Jesus was imitating God, and he's saying, hey, God's doing it, so it's okay for me to do it, but also, as we see in verse 18, that they, that they detected something more in Jesus' claim that God was his Father. So when he said, my Father works, it was, there was something about that that was more than just how any one of us might say God is our Father. You know, the, our Father in heaven is working. That's not what Jesus said. It was more intimate. It was more, there was more of an equality there. He's claiming a unique relationship with the Father. And so they are troubled. It's interesting that the rabbis in Jesus' day discussed whether God himself kept the Sabbath. It was a question that they talked about. Did, did, did God work on the Sabbath? The consensus of the teachers in Israel in Jesus' day was that the Father did work on the Sabbath. That's true. But of course, they all agreed that even though the Father worked on the Sabbath, even though God worked on the Sabbath, he was not sinning. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God ceases to create on the, on the sixth day and on the seventh they rested, the understanding was that he ceased on the sixth day after the sixth day was over. He ceased to create any new things. He wasn't creating any new things. He wasn't saying, let there be some new thing after that. He was finished, and he rested from doing that on the seventh day. But that didn't mean he had stopped working altogether because it was understood that God is always working and always continuing his work of providence. That is, God is constantly upholding the universe. If God stopped working, the universe would just come to an end. The Psalms talk talk about how God feeds every living thing. Every living thing looks to God for their food. They stretch out their hand and God fills it. Well, we all eat, animals and humans and everything else, we eat on the Sabbath day, don't we? And the, the understanding is that God is still working on that day. It's not that on the seventh day when we eat, we don't pray and thank God anymore, right? God is overseeing life and death. Jesus said not a sparrow falls, not a sparrow dies without the Father. Lots of animals die on the Sabbath. God is overseeing still as the ruler of life and death on the Sabbath day. But the question is, how can it be that God's still working and he's not sinning? So some of the rabbis responded by saying, God is simply not subject to the law. God is not subject to the Sabbath. We have to keep the Sabbath. That's for us, but not for God. So there's no problem there. Others would say, no, God does have to keep the Sabbath, but his working is not a violation of the Sabbath because for God, it's so easy. I mean, God is not exerting himself in any way by maintaining the universe. And in fact, the universe is his domain. I mean, Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. God's not leaving his home to work on the Sabbath. You know, God is sitting there totally relaxed, totally not exerting himself, just resting and doing that. 
So even though he's working, he's not violating any Sabbath. That was how some responded. But all agreed God works without sin. See, brothers and sisters, the controversial claim here in verse 17 is not that the Father's working. However you want to understand that, however you want to say he does it, but he's not actually sinning. Jesus is not being controversial when he says God is working. Jesus is being controversial when he says, therefore I'm working. In light of God's working, it's this imitation that's so radical. He works, I'm working also. D.A. Carson rightly comments, Jesus insists that whatever factors justify God's continuous work from creation on, justify his. That's the radical claim. So either, either Jesus is saying, like some rabbis think, you know how God is not subject to the Sabbath? Well, neither am I. Or Jesus is saying, you know how God doesn't violate the Sabbath because it's all just easy for him? Well, so is it with me. If it's right for God, it's right for me. And if it's wrong for me, then it's wrong for God. That's how radical Jesus' claim here is. What a bold claim. He's undoubtedly, brothers and sisters, claiming for himself a relation to God other than the standard human relationship to God. Jesus is not simply not saying to them, you guys have your idea of the Sabbath is wrong. Your idea of the Sabbath is wrong. Man, if you really understood the Sabbath, we could all be working on the Sabbath. That's not what he's saying. It's not that they understood the Sabbath wrong exactly, but what he's saying is, you've got me wrong. You've got me wrong. A lot of people get Jesus wrong. That was a problem in the first century when Jesus was on the earth, and that's been a problem throughout the centuries, and that is, it remains a problem in the 21st century. A lot of people get Jesus wrong. They see him do things. They see him say things that they don't understand or that they don't like, and they accuse him. People do it today. I, can't, I don't like Jesus. I don't approve of his teaching. You know, I don't approve of that teaching on hell, or I don't approve of you know, this whole thing of dying on the cross. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't like it. And so they accuse him of being false or being wrong. And they dismiss him. They get him wrong. What they should do is say, you know, maybe I don't get Jesus. Maybe I don't understand what he's doing. Because when I understand who he is, then I really should be accusing myself, not accusing him. If I don't get what he's doing, if I disapprove of what he says, it should be me that the finger is pointed at, not him. What we do with Jesus reveals who we are. In light of what Jesus has said here, there's only three options. He's either a lunatic, this is often pointed out, in light of his claim of equality with God, he's either crazy, that is, he's just a, he's a guy like you and I, and he's totally deluded, thinking that he's equal with God and that he can do what God does and all that. Or he's a liar or an evil person. That is, he's not deluded. He's actually sick and twisted and is deceiving. And he's saying, I'm equal with God. And he knows he's not. Or he's aspiring to that. 
or thirdly, he is the Lord. He really is God. He really is equal to the Father. If he said this, these are our only options. Jesus' claim, of course, is that he is the Lord. And that's the claim that we believe as Christians. He's not a lunatic. He's not lying. He, in fact, is the Lord. Now, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, has God saying this, To whom will you liken me, and who will be my equal? There is a clear teaching in the Bible that there is no one who is equal with God, right? No one can be equal to God. In fact, the ones who have tried to be equal with God, we know what happened to them. First, Satan desires to be equal to God, right? He says, I will be like the Most High. So the Jews know this, right? They say there's no one who's like God or equal to him. There is only God and he alone is unique. Satan is the one who wanted to make himself equal with God. That's basically the, uh, you know, the primal sin. And then you have Adam. Satan comes and tries to infect Adam with his own delusions of grandeur. And he says, you can be like God if you eat from this tree. You can be like him, equal to him. And, Satan, and Adam likes this idea in, in his sinful heart, and he also falls. And brothers and sisters, the Jews, when they hear Jesus saying this, they had the Satan alarm going off in their head, okay? This is the nature of the charge, and I, and I just hope we get it very clear as we, before we proceed. It's a major, major accusation. I think as Christians, sometimes we quickly take it for granted that Jesus is God and equal with the Father. We don't realize what a shocking thing that is. And the Jews are saying, you're making yourself equal to God, man. You are a, you're a, you're a little demon. You know? Adam 2.0 here, repeating that, that original sin in the garden. It is a major accusation. And let me be clear, if Jesus is not God, guess what? You guys who believe in him are in really big trouble. I include myself too. We Christians are in really big trouble. We are idolaters if we are worshiping Jesus as being equal with the Father. It's a huge accusation. And notice again, it involves us, doesn't it? Because this is the timeless trial of the ages. If, if the Jews are right and Jesus is wrong, then Christianity and Christians are sunk. On the other hand, if Jesus is right and he is the Lord and we Christians are rightly following him and that is the truth, then anyone who does not believe in Jesus is sunk. It's radical. There's no neutrality here. This is the case of the ages. It's so important, and the stakes are so high. So these are the charges. They're very serious. We come now to my second point this morning. How is it that Jesus can be God? Because what can be said in Jesus' defense? If he is the Lord, how? And then the third thing we'll look at is, if he is the Lord, why? But first, how? Now, it's important to see that Jesus knows what the accusation is, right? Is Jesus ignorant of the accusation? Do you think in the following discourse, he's like, 
maybe, did, did he misunderstand them and he's answering some other charge? Not at all. He knows they're accusing him of being equal with the Father and of being of the devil. And notice that Jesus nowhere in, this, in his answer renounces what he said or, or, or tries to mitigate the accusation. He does not renounce the charge that he's equal with the Father or that he's making himself equal with the Father. In fact, far from renouncing, you'll notice that Jesus intensifies it. Far from getting himself out of trouble with his answer, Jesus only deepens his trouble with his answer because what he basically says is, I'm not only working because God's working. You want to know how far this imitation of God is going to go? It's not only that the Father works on the Sabbath and I also work, but my Father and I have such a relationship that is so beyond any standard human relationship that just as the Father raises the dead, not just works on the Sabbath, but raises the dead. You know how the Jews, they all believe the Father, God raises the dead. You know how the Father raises the dead? Well, I raise the dead too. In fact, he's given it to me to raise the dead. As the Father has life in himself and he can raise whoever he wills, he's given it to me to have life in myself and to raise whomever I will. And you know how you believe that God is the judge of all the earth? Well, it's not just that I'm working on the Sabbath because he's working on the Sabbath. I'm actually the judge too. In fact, the Father has decided to judge no one but through me. I am the judge of all the earth. He's given me authority to judge. And furthermore, you know how the Father should be honored? Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to God? Well, Jesus intensifies the problem in the Jews' minds by saying here in verse 23, God has done this so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. That is, the glory that belongs to God also belongs to the Son. And that's what we see in Revelation, is it not? Blessing and honor and glory and power and majesty and salvation be unto our God and unto the Lamb. There is no doubt in Jesus' mind and in his teaching that he is equal with God. He is no creature of God. He is divine. And we see this in his teaching, and we've already seen this throughout the Gospel of John. Turn with me to John chapter 1. What Jesus says in John 5 shouldn't be surprising to us if we've been paying attention. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, right at the beginning. Here's what John says right out of the gate. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. So right out of the gate, we already see that the Word, who is Christ, is God, but yet with God, and was in the beginning for all of eternity, and God created nothing apart from the Word. The Word shares the glory of the Father in creation. 
Turn, look to verse 14 in the same chapter. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So even John the Baptist is conscious that the person who's coming is someone far greater than I am. Because, mysteriously, he existed before me. Look at verse 18 excuse me, of the same chapter. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, and the New American Standard has the correct translation here, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So again, right here in the prologue, there is a repeated emphasis upon this word who is God, but who is also with God in the bosom of the Father and who has come into the world to make God known. Verse 23 John the Baptist quotes Isaiah, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 40, you'll see that Isaiah goes on to say that every valley will be uh, lifted up, every mountain will be, be made low. And he says, they'll make straight in the desert a highway for who? For our God. You remember, if you know the Messiah, maybe you'll remember that. Handel's Messiah. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who is coming that John is preparing us for? And Isaiah is very clear. It's God. And you're to say unto the cities in Judah, Behold your God. Verse 27 of chapter 1. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whom sandal I am not worthy to untie. We see this, we see the divinity of Jesus in his virgin birth, that his father is no man. He's supernaturally brought into this world. And it cannot be said that he is simply the offspring of man. We see the divinity of Jesus in his knowledge. Repeatedly as he meets people, he knows everything about them. He says in chapter 2, verse 25, in fact, Jesus knows all men and he doesn't need anyone to testify what is in man because he knows them all. We see his divinity in his omnipotence and that he can walk on water, that he can turn water into wine with ease. doesn't look like Jesus is breaking a sweat or a blood vessel when he turns hundreds of gallons of water into wine. We see his authority throughout in the way he speaks. Truly, truly, I say unto you. You've heard that it is said, but I say unto you. So there's no doubt that Jesus, according to his own teaching, and according to those who knew him and followed him, was divine. But as we look back at chapter 5, we need to consider that in his answer, although Jesus does not renounce his equality with God, Jesus makes it perfectly clear to those whom he is addressing and answering that he is not the Father. True? I mean, he makes it totally clear. He's not renouncing his equality with God or his divinity. 
but he's making it perfectly clear that he is not the Father, and importantly, he is not a second God. You see, this is the error that causes the Jews to accuse Christians of being idolaters and to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Because what they think Jesus is doing or saying is that he's some kind of a second God. Yeah, there's God in heaven and then there's God, I'm God. There's two different gods here. I've made myself equal to God in the sense that I'm another God besides him. And he's absolutely not doing that. There is a distinction throughout where Jesus talks about the Father and and his relationship to the Father, but it is perfectly clear in Jesus' answer that there's only one God. Look at verse 44 of chapter 5. 44 of chapter 5. And Jesus speaks like this a lot. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? So there's no doubt in Jesus' mind there's only one God. And yet, he speaks of a distinction. He speaks of a relationship between the Father and himself. And this, brothers and sisters and friends who are not Christians, is the essence or the point of the doctrine of the Trinity. That there is only one God. Monotheism is true. By believing in the divinity of Jesus... No one is surrendering even an iota or an inch of monotheism. But what is being said here is that while there's one God and one being, the mystery of it all, the mystery that is revealed to us, this isn't something we reasoned about or tried to figure out on our own, but the mystery of the one God and of his, of his one being is that God is three persons. This one being and one God is three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and and the Holy Spirit. There's nothing unlawful about this idea. That is, there's nothing in the Old Testament that would nullify the idea of the Trinity. The Old Testament upholds and argues for monotheism. The Old Testament does not argue that in the one being, there is only one person. It doesn't argue that. In fact, there's lots of places in the Old Testament where it seems to suggest there's a complexity of the being of God that there is persons in the being of God. It doesn't come out and say that as clearly as Jesus is saying here, but it, it leans in that direction. It allows for it. There's nothing illogical about the Trinity either. Some people think it's illogical, but that's simply not true. We're not saying there's one person and three persons. That would be illogical. But we are saying there's one being, one God, and it is not illogical, but it is beyond anything that we are familiar with. That's the difference. Because all that we know, all that we are accustomed to understand, is one being, one person. That's all that we understand, right? You, you show me a being, and I'll show you one person. But what, what is the mystery of the Trinity is that there's one being, and there's three persons. You look at those three persons, and you say, there is God. So it is mysterious. It's beyond what we, understand, what, we, what we know or what we are accustomed with. But it's not illogical. And among the three persons, we learn that there's this incredible 
and unique relationship going on between the Father and between the Son. Heretics throughout history, in the past and today, have made much of this passage to argue that since Jesus appears to be less than the Father here, he is therefore not God. And they point to this passage and they say, look, the Father, the Father is showing the Son things. The Son is learning from the Father. The Father gives the Son authority. The Father gives the Son to have life in himself. It seems like the Son is less than the Father. And so therefore, heretics throughout history have said, Jesus is not God. They'll use this passage to argue that he's not equal with God. The heretics fail to understand two things about this passage. Number one, what Jesus is ultimately describing here in John 5 in his answer to the Jews is his relationship to the Father as an incarnate man, as the man, Christ Jesus. John Calvin, I believe, is right when he says, the discourse does not relate to the simple divinity of Christ, and those statements which we shall immediately see do not simply and of themselves relate to the eternal word of God, but apply only to the Son of God so far as he is manifested in the flesh. Does that make sense? So basically, what Jesus is not doing here is describing the relationship between the Word and God for all of eternity, you know, before his incarnation, but he's describing himself as the Son of Man in relationship to the Father. There's something that is, um, it's unique to his human relationship as the incarnate Word. Verse 27, notice, He gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus is thinking about his relationship to the Father as the incarnate Word. Early church fathers, in arguing against the heretics, arguing for the full divinity of Christ, brilliantly argued in this passage for the that, this, that Jesus is talking about his eternal relationship with the Father before his incarnation. Everything Jesus is saying here is actually relating to before his incarnation. And they truly, brilliantly argued for it. And much of what they said is true. But I think Calvin is right. And turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we look here at an important text that bears on the subject. Verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul is encouraging us to have the very same attitude that that Christ has. And in verse 5 he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So you see here, there's two different stages in the life of the word, in the time of the word. There's the word before his incarnation where he's equal with the Father. And then the word becomes flesh. There's an emptying, there's a humbling in which he takes a place in which he is needing to obey the Father even to the point of death as a bondservant of God. And what Calvin is saying is what Jesus is describing here about the Father shows me all things and I do all things that the Father does. The Father's given me the task of raising the dead and judging the world and giving life to whom I will. That's all referring to Christ in his incarnation and serving God as the bondservant of God, as the servant of the Lord, as the humble one who's obedient to God even to the death of the cross. So the heretics are wrong to say, hey, look, you know, it looks like that it looks like the Father and the Son are not equal, and so therefore Jesus is not God, and they misunderstand that Jesus is speaking about himself in his humility, but he's fully God. Which is a great mystery, is it not? How God could become a man and humble himself like that. The second thing the heretics fail to understand, very important is that in order for this kind of relationship to exist, and what is the kind of relationship we see in John chapter 5? In order for this kind of relationship to exist, well, what is it, brothers and sisters? It's a relationship of, make sure you understand this, perfect obedience. True? Is Is there any way in which the Son fails to do what the Father shows him? Is there in any place or any point where the Son fails to imitate the Father? According to Jesus' words, there is not. It's a relationship of perfect obedience, perfect imitation, perfect reflection, like seeing your form in a mirror. So basically, whatever God does, Jesus does so perfectly that by seeing Jesus, we can rightly say, you see God. That's how... Absolutely perfect is the reflection. And the point that the heretics miss is this. In order for this kind of relationship to exist, Jesus would have to be God. True? It's implied in everything Jesus says. When he says, the Son cannot do anything of himself, but whatever he sees the Father do, the Father shows him all things, and the Son does everything obedient to his will. What is implied in all of that is the divinity of Christ. In other words, Jesus' subordination to God, the Father, far from disproving his divinity, actually proves his divinity. Brothers and sisters and friends, your insubordination to God proves you're not divine, right? The fact that you disobey God and you're not a humble servant of the Lord shows what a creature, what a wretched creature you are. But the perfection of the Son in mimicking the Father and everything the Father desires and wills proves his divinity. He is no creature, let alone human being. He must be God to obey God perfectly without flaw in order to reflect to us and to the world who God is. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1.
verse 3, a remarkable verse. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, although let's look at verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory, and, as the scripture says here, a pretty good likeness of his person. You know, of all beings, he's the best likeness of his person. No, he is the exact representation of his nature. The exact representation of his nature. What a claim. It's no wonder that the author of Hebrews in this same chapter goes on to contrast Jesus with the angels. Doesn't he? If you're familiar with Hebrews 1 and what he says, he says Jesus is far greater than the angels. I mean, we already know he's far greater than a human being, but he, the author of Hebrews says he's even far greater than the angels. In fact, he's God. Let all the angels of God worship him. Please turn back to John chapter 5. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, John 5. According to Jesus, we see here, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will all marvel. So according to Jesus, the only reason there is such a perfect representation of God is because of love. That at the heart of all this is love between the Father and between the Son. This is a remarkable point. There would be no revelation of God, brothers and sisters, in the earth if it was not for God's love for his Son and the Son's love for the Father. Later, Jesus will speak about how he loves the Father and does whatever the Father commands. I want you to consider for a moment, what if the Father didn't love the Son? What if in the three persons of the being of God, there was discord? Could you imagine? What if there was animosity between the Father and the Word? Not that there could ever be. What if God was in conflict with himself? Do you think we would be here right now talking about these things? Do you think we would have any hope if there was discord in God? You see... There is salvation and there is hope because there is love in God. What an awesome thought. Because the Son loves the Father and does all that the Father commands, and because the Father loves the Son and shows him all things, therefore we have hope. And we speak a lot, of course, and we should, we speak, about, we speak a lot about the Father's love for us, right? We speak a lot about how God God loves the world, and he does, and it's wondrously true. But there would be no love for the world or salvation for the world if there was no love in the Trinity. There'd be no sending of the Son. There'd be no revelation of the Father. And don't miss this point. It's only when we understand the love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for the Father when you will begin to appreciate God's love for you. Okay, let me say that again. 
It's only when you begin to understand the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father when you will begin to appreciate the love of God for you. Because the love of God for us is shown in this, according to the Bible, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. When you understand how much the Father loves the Son, then you'll realize what an amazing love he has for you, that he would be willing to sacrifice his beloved Son, in whom he's well pleased, for people like you and I, wretched sinners who aren't obedient to the Father, who aren't humble, who aren't servants, who don't love him. And he would let his son be tortured and crushed on our behalf, the son that he loves for you and for, uh, for me. And that he would invite us, not just he would not just do that for us so that he could say, okay, you're free now, get out of here. But that, according to the scriptures, he would invite us into that same fellowship of love. That same fellowship of love that God has for his son. So how can Jesus be God? Because what he's saying here is not nullifying monotheism. And it's not making him a second God. There is subordination in his incarnation. But the point here is that there's a relationship within the being of God that the Jews simply don't understand. And the Muslims simply don't understand. And people don't understand when they accuse Christians of worshiping multiple gods. It's not true. This is Jesus' claim of equality with the Father and yet defending himself against idolatry. My last point this morning is I pray that you would listen and I could hold your attention for what I consider to be the most important point. Why the Messiah must be God. So we've claimed, we've seen the claim that Jesus is equal with the Father and divine, and we've looked at how that can be, and how it can be that he's subordinate to God and yet still divine. But the final question is what's the point? Why does it matter? Why must the Messiah be God? Now, the Jews, brothers and sisters, did not believe, and still to this day do not believe, that the Messiah must be divine. If you ask a Jew today, tell me about the Messiah, they'll tell you about a man, and only a man. Perhaps greater than David, greater than Elijah, but a man nonetheless. They're not looking for a divine Messiah. And what is the the role of the Messiah according to the Jews? Well, the role of the Messiah is to come and rule on David's throne, come to judge among the people. The role of the Messiah is to reward the righteous with blessing, but simply as an instrument of God. He's certainly not to be worshipped in any way. So they're not looking for a divine Messiah. They don't see the need for a divine Messiah. And the Jews think it's strange that as Christians we believe in a divine Messiah. Why? Yes, he'll be a great man. He'll be wonderful. But he doesn't need to be divine or worshipped. According to the Jews, if Israel attains to the righteousness of the law, if as a nation they obey God and keep his commandments and serve him as they ought to, and they become righteous, the word righteous means they become right, they become what they're supposed to be. Once they do that, the Messiah will come. That's what's preached week after week. 
in a synagogue. Come on, people. Keep the commandments. Repent. Do what you're supposed to do. If we all do this together collectively, the Messiah will come. Blessing will flow. And what they fail to understand and failed to understand in the first century is that, yes, the Messiah will come and rule and judge and be the instrument of God for those things and bring blessing, yes. But beyond that, in addition to that, more importantly than that, the crucial purpose of the Messiah's coming according to the Scriptures and according to what Jesus actually did was to die. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. What John the Baptist says when he's preparing the way for the Lord and he sees the Messiah and he knows it's Jesus, he says, there he is, everybody, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he's come to do. The purpose of the Messiah, don't miss this, is to lay down his life. That's what he came to do in the first century when he came. To lay down his life as a substitutionary, that is, he takes our place. And a propitiatory, that is, he turns away the wrath and the anger and the, and the righteous indignation of God. He came to lay down his life as a substitutionary, propitiatory sacrifice for the iniquity of the people. He came to die to take away our sins. He came to die for our sins. And this is what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 53 and in many other places. But it's clearly shown there that the Messiah is to come and be bruised for our iniquities. Amen? He came to be chastised and wounded so that we could be healed. And Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 53... All we like sheep have gone astray. Every single one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And it's through him being crushed by the Father. It's through him having our sins laid upon him and him dying that we are justified and made right with God. The law prescribes what is beautiful. It shows us what we must do if we're to be righteous by our own works and by our own efforts. It shows us what God requires. He requires perfection. He requires perfect obedience. You want to be right with God by your own works and by your own behavior? Well, then obey the Father in everything. Don't sin at all. Do what Jesus did. Otherwise, you're not acceptable before God. You're not fulfilling the law which requires perfect love for God and for your neighbor. Perfect love. It's not holding up a standard and saying, you should try to do this. It's a really good idea. It's saying, if you don't do this, you will die. It will be your righteousness if you do it. But if you don't do it, you will perish. We, we realize through experience and through the scriptures that the law actually only serves to condemn us since none of us keep the law, nor can we. There's not one person here who is obedient to God in their own behavior in following the precepts of the law. 
we all fail to love God and our neighbor. By the law simply comes the knowledge of sin. If you really look at what the law requires and you consider your life in light of that law, you realize, I am a sinner. That's what we proclaim as Christians to this world. No one is good. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If the blessings that the Messiah is to bring depends upon us being righteous by obedience to the law, then that blessing will never come. If it depends on you fulfilling the commandments, there will be no blessing. But there will be the curse. Because the law also promises cursing to those who don't obey it. The scriptures tell us that God knew this all along and he gave the law to us in order to crush our self-righteousness and our pride and to humble us so that we might receive salvation by looking away from ourselves and by receiving that salvation in the Messiah and in Christ. Amen? Only because Jesus is God, brothers and sisters, could he die for our sins. In order for there to be this substitutionary and satisfying sacrifice to take away sin, the sacrifice had to be sinless, it had to be perfect, in order for there to be an acceptable sacrifice to God. As Anselm, the theologian in the Middle Ages, rightly observed, there must be a complete satisfaction made for sin, and this no sinner can make. So if God doesn't undertake on your behalf to bear away your sins, there is no salvation for you. It's for this reason that the Messiah must be God. Does that make sense? It's for this reason, and this reason alone, that the Messiah must be God and not just some human agent to, do, to bring in some blessing. Jesus is before us here in the scriptures as God precisely because he came into the world to die for your sins and to bear the punishment that we deserve, the perfect God exchanging himself for wretched sinners, me and you, that we might be forgiven, washed clean, and made righteous, not by our works, not by our doing and our performance, but by his cross and by his death. Now look with me at verse 24 of chapter 5. It is only because Jesus is God and has come into the world to die for our sins that there can be anything like this said. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death into life. This could never be said unless Jesus had come into the world to die for our sins. The gospel that he proclaims is, look unto me and live. I came into the world to lay down my life, a sacrifice for sins. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is saying, if you believe in this, if you believe this message, if you trust in me, you will live and not die. Not because you are good in and of yourself, not because you have deserved life through your performance, but because of what I will do for you. Whoever believes in him is right now raised to life, according to Jesus. You have passed from death to life if you're a Christian. F.F. Bruce says, The believer does not need to wait for the last day to hear the judge's favorable verdict. It has been pronounced already. If you believe in Jesus Christ, according to Jesus here in verse 24 and on, 
You have passed from death to life. You will not be condemned. You don't have to sit there and say, what's going to happen on judgment day? You know, what's going to happen when I stand before the throne of God? I know I'm such a sinful person. What's going to happen? I hope I've lived well enough. I hope I've done. As a Christian, you don't need to worry about that. Because through faith, your sins have been forgiven and taken away because of what he has done. On the other hand, if you're not a Christian and you don't believe this, maybe you're religious. It's not, the Bible doesn't say that all religious people are okay. The Bible says that only those who believe in Jesus will not perish and have eternal life. You can be as religious as they get. You can be pursuing righteousness by the law. You can be trying to establish your way before God through obedience and serving God and doing the things you're supposed to be doing. You will perish if you don't believe in Christ. Because God requires a perfect righteousness that you can't give. That's why God became flesh, to die for you, so you could be saved. And in verse 28 and verse 29, even though Jesus says, whoever believes now has passed from death to life, he tells us of the future. In verse 28 and 29, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in the future in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good to the resurrection of life and those who committed the evil to the resurrection of judgment. In other words, according to Jesus, when you die, that's not the end of you. Every single person in the future will be called forth from the dead to be judged. You see how he's, he's moved from defending himself before these phonies and these people who don't even understand the law and God and are accusing him when they really should be accusing him themselves. He's moved now to talk about another courtroom and another trial that involves you and I, all of us. There's coming a time when the dead will be raised. And there's only two categories of people. That's it. You'll either be raised to inherit eternal life or you'll be raised to suffer condemnation and judgment. That's it. It's coming. We proclaim that. It's coming. And no words can possibly express what that day will be like the exquisite joy of those who will inherit eternal life and the unspeakable horror of those who on that day will awaken to realize how wrong they've been. In the Gospel of John, in the context of all of what the Gospel of John says, to do good does not mean to do good works, but it means to have done the truth by believing the truth that Jesus Christ taught by believing that you're a sinner who needs the death of Christ, who can't do it through your own works, and who receives Jesus Christ and his salvation through faith alone. To do evil, on the other hand, is to do what the leaders of Israel and those who followed them did. To do evil does not mean to pursue evil deeds. To do evil means to reject Christ, to close your ears to the truth, to say, I don't need that, to dismiss it, to say, that doesn't make sense to me. So I accuse Jesus in his word. Or, you know, it doesn't feel right to me. Or it's not my thing, you know. Or I've got a better way. To reject Christ is to do the evil, the worst evil you could ever do. Unlike a John Grisham novel or a movie that deals with a courtroom drama, this drama is not a fictional one. 
The one we're reading about here in John 5 was a historic confrontation between a man who claimed to be God, who was crucified for that claim, and who rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, and who we learn is coming again to judge. It's a drama that involves you and I. And as you consider Jesus' trial, as we're reading about this historic trial, I ask you this morning to consider your own trial. Because what you do with Jesus reveals who you are. How you judge him reveals how you will be judged. And the stakes are so high, it, it can't be exaggerated. It's the most important verdict of your life. In a sense, we're all called to jury duty regarding Jesus. If you've been called for jury duty, you go, right? That's what you should do. That's what you have to do. You go, and you're supposed to pay attention and weigh the case, and you're supposed to take it seriously because the fate of somebody is, is, uh, is on the line. God calls every person in this world to jury duty over Jesus. Come sit in the courtroom Come hear the evidence and make a decision and a verdict about this man, Christ Jesus. And what you decide about him will determine what your verdict will be on Judgment Day for you. So I urge you to pay attention to the arguments, to not abandon your jury duty and put it off or dismiss it, to not, not, have, to not go into the courtroom half-heartedly but to pay attention. And my prayer is that you will recognize the truth, that you will honor the Son as you honor the Father, because you can't honor the Father without honoring the Son, and that you will believe in Him, and in believing in Him, have eternal life. Please stand with me. Father in heaven, we're dealing with serious things. In in an age and a time when people don't take very many things seriously anymore. I pray, Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, cause sobriety to descend upon us. That you would help us to see what we are being called to do that you would help us to see the seriousness of the case and the, st- and the high stakes that are involved. I pray that those who are not believers in Christ would either this day believe or this day begin a journey, an investigation to find out about Jesus, who he is. Lord, I pray that many people in our lives and in this city that we interact with would hear the truth that you would, you would give it to us, Lord, to be lights in this place. That many people would come to know you this, this year, this month even, this day, Lord. We ask for salvation. And Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We marvel at the love you have for him, at the mystery of the Trinity. And we thank you that you love us so much, even though we don't deserve it. Lord, we just marvel that you would do this for us. 
And I just pray for each one of us here that we would grow in our understanding of these things, grow in our wonder, grow in our love for you. And Father, that we would appreciate what you have done for us and just enjoy you and enjoy the life as Christians that we have. Thank you so much. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.